My guest this week was, and still is, ahead of his time with his business. With an early career in one of the most reputable magazines in history, The Economist, he learned not only the importance of a story, but how businesses are nurtured by relationships over algorithms. Look, I have to sidebar for a moment, which I know during an intro shouldn't be allowed, but whatever, it's my podcast. I've always loved photography, but I've never been able to afford it. Think of that Steve McQueen photo by William Claxton or that David Bowie photo. If you're the average person and you want to experience that image, you're most likely just viewing it on a phone or in an art gallery. But like, what if you want it in your home? Can you afford it? Like, Or are you me when I was 12 years old printing some pixelated version of The Clash like an idiot? I had some Joe Strummer thing that I'd yanked off some other site that was taken from some other site or whatever. It was awful. Look, it's not what the artist intended, nor does it feel like it. Well, my guest this last week changed that with his business, Sonic Editions. His company works with photographers, the Getty Archive, and the late photographers' estates to secure limited prints of some of these incredible works of art. So you can have them in your home, print it on high-quality paper. But you get to experience it the way the artist intended. And you're not using a printer and some Ikea frame. Because is that really how you want to view your hero? My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Russell Blackmore, founder of Sonic Editions. Russell and I discuss his early career at The Economist, being inspired by discoveries in the Getty Image Archive, combining his passions for photography and music to make owning art more accessible, and why the best photos come with the story. Thanks a lot for, for joining and for chatting today. Um, I want to talk a ton about Sonic Editions because obviously I you know, like the, the way that you built your brand and your background, like I had no idea, like all the different paths you had from the economist and Getty and, and, and this stuff. I mean, I, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours about this and he was just, you know, basically bragging that you're this entrepreneurial wonderkind. So, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your, your life and how this got started. That's, that's very kind. Um, like everything that you know, it kind of started, as a way to get out of doing real work. Um, so, well, podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> so my background was in magazines um, and, you know, starting at some of the worst kind of business to business titles you've ever heard of, you know, um, terrible kind of um, ground engineering and concrete yearbook, these kind of terrible um, um, things. But that moved, I, I finally got into something that I was interested in, which was architectural titles um, and then I moved to The Economist, um, which... Which is a pretty big flex. I mean, I think The Economist is probably one of the most respected magazines other than The New Yorker. Like, ever. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a fantastic um, magazine. It was a fantastic company to work for. I was very lucky I got there just at the end of this kind of golden era of, you know, it was still like the kind of classic you know, magazine companies of old, you know, and I turned mm. up there in my mid twenties and was given a gigantic expense account, um, responsibility for places in Europe that I had to look up on a map. Um, and all the managers were just kind of the bosses who'd all been there for years, very old, very English. Um, and you were just kind of expected to get on with it. You know, there was no micromanagement. There was um, very little, you know, nobody told you what to do. You were just expected to kind of find your way and, and go and do it normally um, with a very good lunch. Um, you know, it was, it was, you know, looking back on it now, it's kind of difficult to believe just how much they all drank. Um, but, <laughs> but they did. And, you know, it was all on expenses and it happened all the time. Um, so it was this amazing title. It was a private company. Um, mm -hmm. As I say, everybody who was there had you know, been there for 20, 30 years, you know, being, you know, you were the youngest guy there. Um, and, you know, it was, I was there for seven years and it was basically a seven year stag weekend with meetings. It was fantastic. Um, and, you know, we ran, yeah, they ran a successful magazine as well. Um, yeah, I was going to, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just kind of, you know, drunken lunches. It was, um, 
you know, it, it's amazing when you kind of see media companies these days, you know, how they operate. And, you know, you go into a magazine and it's just, you know, a silent floor full of people at desks with headphones on, you know, work, working yeah. quietly and silently and, you know, scared. Whereas this was the opposite. It was um, this rabbit warren of small offices um, in this kind of famous building uh, just off German Street. Um, Why do you think that worked? Because, I mean, it, it's, you know, not to go too far down a rabbit hole so early, but like, you're right. When you think of a lot of media companies now and a lot of new startups, it, it's there's quite a bit of micromanaging. There's there's a lot of isolation. There's um, it, it's funny because I feel like these these companies they build around the concept of a high trust environment. But if you actually work in those environments, you find out that every second of your day is is managed. And, and it sounds like what what you you know were at with the Economist was kind of this beautiful breathing machine of of fun and and you know, yeah great work. yeah i mean you were judged on your results so you couldn't you know you couldn't just go out and get drunk and not do anything um you would you were judged on you know we were in the marketing side of the business so you know we were judged on the fact that we sold more copies than last year um the advertising department were you know judged on whether they brought in more money than the previous year and the editorial department, you know, it was pure church and state, um, which you don't get in many media companies. We had no influence whatsoever on the editorial side. Um, mm. They, you know, they didn't even answer. The editor didn't answer to the chief executive of the company. The editor was appointed by a board. You know, couldn't be fired by this chief executive. Was free to write the rudest things you know they liked about whichever country they were, you know, disapproved of at the time. And the advertisers just kind of had to hold the, you know, shrug it off and just say, sorry, you know, you don't get good coverage just because you took the inside front cover for the whole year. So, um, so as a result, the advertising team, you know, were very good at what they did. Um, but a huge part of that was kind of so the social aspect of it. You know, they took what was, a small British magazine in the kind of mid seventies and made it an international, you know, brand of the kind of, you know, the jet set class, I suppose, you know, it's carrying, you know, it, advertisements for high end booze and, you know, international airlines, you know, it's a proper international title. Um, yeah. And, you know, they did that by being good at their job, by do being good at research, by, you know, knowing that, you know, their reader, um, and, you know, under the, the guy that kind of ran it and who kind of built it in his own image, you know, they were good at, you know, I hate to use the cliche of work hard, play hard, because, uh, I've always been at the assumption that you can just play hard and, you know, just do as little work as you need. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's what they did. They kind of, you know, they, they did the business and then they you know, had fun doing it. Um, and right. that's what's really changed in, you know, certainly in my career time of you, know, you look at these companies now and they're no fun to work in. Whereas there it was genuinely fun. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's, you know, that's the thing that I, I kind of like took such a pause at because so many of these companies now, I mean, I have tons of friends you know, and they're, they're sort of lured to the startups by whatever it is. It's, it's, you, you may not have an expense account, but you have all these free sort of, things and fun incentives and good headphones and a fun desk and, and all just the kind of like tacky stuff to be, not to be trite, you know? Uh, but you find out at the end of the day, they're, they're miserable because there's, there is no trust, right? Yeah. Like you're getting all these things, but there's really no trust in, in, you know, the, the worker actually doing a good job. You, you, you know, like I, I think, you know, what it sounds like was existing there is, is you could kind of do whatever you want as long as the, as long as you got the results. Yeah, very much. You, you were, you know, you were literally given enough rope, you know, you were told to go off and do it. And if at the end of the quarter or the year or whatever, you came back and you know, you hadn't done it, then you needed a pretty good excuse. But if you had, then it's like, right, you know, do it again next year, 5% more, you know, whatever. They weren't ever trying to grow by a hundred percent a year. They were kind of trying to grow sensibly. You know, Bingo. Um, I think that there it is. <laughs> I just realized that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not 
grow exponentially every single year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, you know, when I was there, they were you know celebrating their 160th birthday, so yeah, they were kind of around. Yeah, and I remember, yeah, you know, when the recession post 9/11 hit, there were people there who'd done two or three recessions before and weren't panicking. And whereas now, you know, now a company's kind of half life. Nobody's been there for more than two and a half years. Nobody, you know, been through anything before. So just occasionally, all these, you know ridiculous overpaid old men were quite useful because you know they didn't panic they didn't you know they they'd kind of you know they'd done this before they had the experience of kind of you know doing all these things so you know in some ways having an average uh you know people who've been there for an average of 20 years you know is ridiculous because there's a lot of dead wood but in other ways it means that you've got this kind of there's a knowledge in the company that's not lost all the time and not trying to be replaced. So you don't make the same mistakes again and again. And, you know, you can, you know how to kind of chart the waters. Um, right. Which, you know, has all gone. You know, most companies now that I see, you know, the churn, the churn of people is so quick. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of people will use jobs as a lily pad to the next. You know, it's like, how, how do I get to X salary in this amount of life? And and I may sound really awful saying this, but like someone in their mid 20s with just a few years experience in their mind thinking that they need or deserve sort of extremely high salary with tons of perks. And they're like, oh, I can get there quicker if I basically just jump from job to job to job to job. But in a sense, you you kind of become useless at the end of the day when it sounds like one of the most valued things that was at the economist was the culture and the tenure of the employees. It was, um, I mean, it was, you know, in terms of my career progression, you know, it was slow because all those guys didn't leave (laughs) Um, because why would you? I mean, and the other thing was obviously I backed, you know, a fantastic losing horse in the, you know, I went into magazines, you know, in the late nineties, early noughties, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all those all those magazines I could have jumped ship to, you know, Newsweek, Time, they all died. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. we had the you know, we got the kind of last fun out of it before um you know the whole industry kind of became a shadow of what it was. Um so right. you know, and international press, which is what I you know, the European side of it, we were shipping paper copies around Europe, you know for next day distribution so we worked with newspapers rather you know the uh, the other titles we kind of worked with were the financial times well the i was gonna say the new york times but it wasn't it was the international herald tribune then which was the new york times's international version usa today all of these and you know all these titles and ourselves used to print you know for day a distribution so you have tomorrow you know today's papers in helsinki finland or athens you know, the logistics involved in that, which we don't, you know, now, you know, we just open up our iPad and today's paper is there. But in the older, you yeah, know, they were shipping this stuff around Europe overnight. And, um, you know, you, it was vastly expensive. You know, you, ha- you know, it was a loss-making exercise for all these titles because the cost of mm. you know, distributing it was so high. Um, so, yeah. All of that is gone now. You know, you can't pick up today's British papers in, you know, Sweden or you know, Yugoslavia because why would you? You know, there's no need. You know, it's all just on your um, tablet. So I'm I'm in awe of the technology, but I definitely mourn some of the previous ways of life. I guess. Yeah, to, I, you know, especially with magazines, and I, I, you know. I, I've loved magazines all my life, kind of growing up, you know, music magazines and then onto everything else. Um, and I was listening to um, the podcast with Jamie Dimon, um, the coffee with, oh, great. and, you know, his point that, you know, he still prefers to read physical things because then you glance at an article next to it and it, it takes your interest that you wouldn't otherwise read. You know, that's, that holds true. You know, the Economist, Larry Ellison used to take the back page advert for The Economist for the entire year um, for, for Sun Microsystems and used to do the artwork himself on a PowerPoint just because the back page, you know, half the time it's face down. Everybody knows its name. 
because they see it. You know, there's no back page on the iPad edition. Nobody, nobody gets to that and just leaves it lying around, you know, in the loo or on a plane or yeah, anything like that. You know, all those kind of things are, are gone. But, you know, that was a nice thing in a newspaper or in a magazine. You, you find something you didn't know you were interested in because it's, you know, next to the article you were interested in. Yeah. Yeah, there it, the there wasn't some computerized algorithm. There was there was taste and and a smart editing stuff. Yeah, there's not the kind of three other. Yeah, you, know, you might like this. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Damn. So, so why did you leave? Well, I mean, it well, sounds like uh, you know, know, partly for my liver, um, and uh, yeah, um, because the kind of the music stopped and the Economist, you know, changed it. You know, the guy that had built this. Um, the uh, commercial side of it retired um, mm-hmm. and the new broom kind of came in and swept out all of these uh, 50-something men in uh, um, bespoke suits that, you know, with gigantic expense accounts that nobody was quite sure what they did anymore um, mm. except uh, fly to Hong Kong, you know, 10 times a year at the front of the plane. Um, so yeah. It all kind of came to an end, and I didn't, you know, I, I expect, you know, it's before I had children, it was um, before I was married. So it was just the impertinence of, well, this isn't fun anymore, so I'm going to go and do something else. Um, sure. Which, you know, in retrospect, you know, maybe wasn't the best. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I wanted to kind of, you know, find something that was more in, you know, in tune with my interests rather than, you know, sitting in a darkened room with headphones on doing spreadsheets, which is what it had become, you know, the days of taking off to go to Moscow to see our distributors there in December and kind of, you know, spending three days on an all expenses trip around, you know, Russia, you know, going to the Bolshoi and, being treated to you know, incredible food and you know, all of these magical things that we did. Now they wanted a business case for you going. I mean, it's just like, well, because, you know, and apparently December, you know, wanting to go to Moscow in December because it's snowy, you know, isn't a business reason. So <laughs> all, all of that kind of stuff ended. And, you know, yeah. There was also a st- there was a sense of you know I've done this I've had terrific fun I've been you know literally I think I've travelled to every country in Europe bar two and they're very small ones um, and you know I'm not going to be able to do you know, I can't keep doing this and it's not that you know it's not that well paid a job that I just sit here for the rest of it whilst it's got a very good pension scheme I'm th- I'm right. thirty two so uh, there was a case of right well I. Uh, I'll leave then. I'll go and do something else. Um, I wanted to write a book, which I brief, you know, I went and did. So cliche of everyone's got a book in them. Mine's not in me anymore. I've written it down. But we've established once and for all that that's not a way to earn a living either. Then it was like, right, well, where am I going to work next? You know, there is no international press or well, no press really to speak of to go to. So I started looking around for something that kind of I felt would be interesting. Um, and everybody wanted prior experience of exactly that. You know, I remember at the time applying to work for Chivas Regal um, as one of their best customers. I figured I had insight that they didn't know. Yeah, they should be paying me for this. Um, and they were like, do you have previous experience on marketing you know, uh, spirits? It's just like, no, but, you know, I know where to get them and I've drunk a few. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but to cut a long story short, um, I ended up at Getty Images, so which was yeah there was a media base to it. It was an international role. Photography was something that I was you know, always interested in as well. So I kind of felt like a very good fit. Um, yeah, and yeah, so I you know I turned up there after yeah you know, more interviews than you'd get to be chairman of Goldman Sachs, um, and immediately found that the kind of new brooms at the Economist would just, that's how businesses were now. You know, mm-hmm. you know, there is no, I think I need to go to Paris for the afternoon. Um, who do I ask? Because the answer was always no. Um, you know, there was none of the kind of, what I'd got, what I'd become very spoilt expecting at The Economist was 
totally outside the norm and you know going to a different company made me realize that but obviously it was a bit too late by then right yeah i mean god that that's tough because i mean i I feel like you know i imagine that's got to be somewhat confusing too because you amongst many others and uh, geez thousands and thousands of people like because the publishing industry kind of decided all at once to try to reinvent itself thanks to um I mean, I, I don't mind saying this, but more or less the, the growing monopoly of Google for ads and Instagram for ads and Facebook yeah. for ads and and the fact that people were just so stuck in their phones anyway. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's tough because I do feel some sort of, um, not sympathy, I don't think that's fair, but just like how challenging it is for a lot of these other people places. I mean, I still subscribe to The Economist. And yeah, I mean, it's it's not, uh, for me, like the, the, the quality and the journalism still feels the same, but like hearing how all that stuff was changing, you know, I, I definitely, my heart breaks a little bit for that. At the end of the day, the company probably has you know, a higher profit margin than it did. And that... Well, is and, that good Well, though? to me, to me, that, you know, the way it was, you know, what was difficult to defend, you know, in many ways... It was there's something great to be said about a company that everybody enjoyed working for and was fun, and you know, yeah, and it's you know, it still made a lot. You know, it was a very very good business, but people loved working there and people didn't want to leave. And I think the modern thing is that you want people to leave because you don't want people staying too long. You don't want um, you know the cost of people. You know, if people stay for twenty years, then their pension. Um, you know, uh, what you are on that is, is vast, and they expect you know a pay rise every year. And you know you get you, you know, there are people who you know were there too long and were promoted beyond their level of competence, or you know didn't really have anything left, you know, much to do to offer. But you know, people liked having them around, right? But to me, there's kind of you know, there's a middle ground in terms of. You can do all of this and still, you know, still make it enjoyable. It doesn't, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time, you know, conjuring up ways to take the piss. Um, but, and I remember ringing my boss. My, I was very lucky. My boss was in Paris. So, and I was in London. Um, so mm-hmm. he was kind of one removed and he was, you know, always um, supportive and um, up for any adventure. And I remember ringing him up and saying, I wanted to go to the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Um, I thought they were a key market that we could improve our sales on. Yeah, and it was the summer and I was bored. And he was like, well, how many do we sell in each country? And I was like, 30 copies a week. It's like, well, what do you predict you could do if you go there? It's like, 35? Yeah. <laughs> Let's not aim too high here. You know, I'll go to 40 as a, as a max. And he's like, okay, well, what's the plan? I was like, well, I'm going to fly to Helsinki in Finland, and then I'm going to get a helicopter from Helsinki to Tallinn, and then the next day fly down, fly down through the three Baltic states and then get an overnight train up through Belarus to St. Petersburg and have the weekend in St. Petersburg. And he's just like, okay, you can go on one condition. It's like, what? It's like, I'm coming too. It sounds like an adventure. So... We set out on this five-country, six-day trip, you know, with helicopters yeah. and overnight Russian trains, you know, through the steppe to go to St. Petersburg. And, you know, each night got later and later. As well, because obviously the distributors in this country had never seen, you know, any of the big international titles had never bothered with them before. So they all wanted to kind of show you everything and, you know, take you out, show you the town. So... Unfortunately, our Lithuanian distributor had a stroke the week before, but still insisted on seeing us. So we visited him in hospital where he handed us the train tickets for the next leg of our journey. And, you know, I kind of look back on that now and cannot believe that that was a work trip. And, you know, I got to do it. Well, before we, we move on, let me just poke at one thing because it it feels like you're you're sharing these stories in a way that you're like, oh, you know, this was so crazy, this was wild or silly. But at, at the same time, I think a lot of people truly, truly forget the importance of 
personal relationships that grow businesses yeah. and and create opportunities. I mean, I mean, I am a perf- my entire career <laughs> is based on me just kind of like being in the room at the right yeah. time. You know, like there is so many things where it was like, oh yeah, I know Jeremy or, you know, and I don't say this to talk about myself, but I say this in the sense that, that a lot of people really forget the importance of a longstanding and, and, uh, cultivating of a relationship because that's, you know, what encourages people to take risks because not everyone looks at the numbers of a risk or a potential business opportunity. They also look at who are the people behind yeah. it. So if you're able to grow, you know, some sort of relationship with someone and then you can go to them and they're like, okay, I'm not, I'm not more or less taking a chance on these numbers. I'm taking a chance on Russell, you know, and I think that that's something that is just so um, that people don't really take into account as much anymore. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, a lot of those people that you know, I knew over that time, I'm still in contact with, you know, which I'm not with other jobs. Um, you know, especially, you know, the ones that you used to go and visit, you know, um, the people who used to, you know, represent the economist in Russia, in Sweden, all of those people. You know, I could pick up the phone to them now, whatever it is, you know, 15 years later and, you know, keep up. You know, there's still a group of them that meet up in London every December. Obviously, we missed last last year. Just just for a, you know for this this kind of weird year where none of us have travelled. You know, it's quite nice for someone like me who used to travel a lot to actually have a bit of time off. But you know, and there is some part of um you know, you can if you're in the position that you are or you know I am to a degree you can keep up with your network via Zoom and via phone, you know, whatever. But if you're starting out, you can't meet these people over Zoom. You can't, yeah, exactly. you can't bump into somebody in a room, you know, or be introduced by a mutual friend in a, you know, when you're all in the same city at the same time. And that's, you know, that's what's going to have to come back because. I agree. I mean, I could not, uh, could not agree more. And I'm, I'm, that is the thing that I, you know, cause I look like, uh, like PC Womo, you know, the, the big peacock or whatever, you know, it was going digital. And in my mind, I was just like, you know, you know, while I'm grateful, I mean, I, I want the industry to, to survive as long as it can, but I was like, man, but so much of those events is just bumping into folks. It's just talking to people. It's, it's growing those relationships. Yeah. It's the bars and the restaurants around the event and the coffees and, you know, it's all of that stuff. It's not just, you know, the show. Yeah, exactly. So, so you, so you're at Getty for a bit and, and how how does sorry not, not to to yeah switch onward but how does how does um you know your, this this you know new business idea sort of start? Um, this I think the new business start idea started in one of the indeterminate thirty six person global marketing calls that used to happen once a week for two hours, and I remember when I left the just. Pop back for one more. I remember when I left the economy. So my boss was in Paris and his boss, who was the um, kind of head honcho for all circulation, marketing, all of that, was in the UK. And he was a kind of fairly old guy. He couldn't use computer at all. His secretary printed out all his emails for him every morning. He wrote on them um, and gave them back to her to, to send back. He didn't have a mobile phone. He certainly didn't have, well, he didn't have, a, you know, he didn't have a BlackBerry. He certainly didn't have a mobile phone. I remember meeting him afterwards and he just went, you know, you're unemployable. And it was just like, I'm 32. I can't really be unemployable. Anyway, I got to Getty and he was right. (laughs) I was unemployable. So a 36 person global marketing call, you know, with the entire global team, you know, everyone dialing in. And I used to sit in the London office with everyone else kind of on their, you know, on their headsets, listening to this. And it was just like, well, this is a total you know, waste of time. Every week we're all doing this. Nobody's listening. Everyone's on mute. Everyone's bored. Nobody's listening. I think at one point somebody you know, messaged me to say, we can see that you're reading the paper. And it's just like, of course I'm reading the paper. <laughs> Anyway, this was my kind of escape plan um, because Getty's a brilliant company and what they've done you know, is revolutionary and they've, kind of, they've changed the photographic licensing model and they've bought 
some you know, they, they look after some amazing archives. And that was always my interest. You know, I wanted to kind of go and look in the archives and look at the photos and go and speak to the, the people who kind of, the photographers, the people who are kind of cataloging this stuff. Because you know, even, in, even in right. a company like Getty, where they own, you know, the, their archives have got tens, 90, 100 million photos, and they've only cataloged you know, and, and scanned a fairly small percentage of it. You know, it's kind of like 10% a scan. There's so much, and you know, there's no business case to kind of go and scan 80 million pictures and find out all of it. You know, they, yeah, they've got most of the great stuff, but there's, there's always fascinating stuff that they find. So I was kind of sat in one of these indeterminate meetings on mute and just thought, why can't I buy a print? You know, because obviously I'd also spend a lot of time going through Getty Archive, you know, on my desktop, just looking for pictures of, you know, the bands I like and um, things I was interested in. And whenever I asked, you know, can I buy this? It's like, oh, yeah, you can go to the gallery. And the gallery, which was, you know, beautiful you know, London address. They're like, yeah, that one would be 600 pounds or 700. I was just like, yeah, it's not quite what I was looking for. You know, I'm, I'm looking for something, you know, one step up from the, uh, the poster in a shabby Ikea clip frame and one step yeah. down from yeah. the, you know, I remember when I used to come to New York and going to uh, Morrison Hotel Gallery and, you know, they had got this amazing stuff, you know, beautiful pictures. And they're always kind of two, three thousand dollars. It's just like, OK, I guess I'll buy the book. Um, so that was where the germ of the idea came from. And it was going to be music photography aimed at a younger audience. And it was going to be an internal project. I took it to them first um, to, to get me out of the meetings. You know, it, it was just like, you know. I'm in middle management. Get me out of here. Um, so that was, I took it to them. Everyone loved the idea. And then it kind of came back down the thing of like, no, we could, you know, why not, you know, 101 reasons we can't do it. So having walked away from, you know, a job that I loved, it was much easier the second time to go, well, you know what? I've got nothing to lose. I really don't want to be sat in this 36 person marketing call any longer. Um, I'll go give it a try. So. That was uh, that was the, and that was two thousand nine, right? Yeah, so two thousand nine, I left, um, and with luckily, I had somebody who was helping me who had kind of technical, yeah, who, well, who persuaded me he was technical enough to kind of do all the bits that I had no idea how to do, like develop a website and you know, all of that stuff. Sure. Yeah, so I quit and and started Sonic Conditions. So you're ready. You're ready to buy a watch. But where do you go? This weirdo, that site, your friend's friend's friend? Are you sure it's legit? Do you know what you're doing? Check Topper Jewelers and start with the best. I have been a fan of Topper Jewelers for everything in the watch world. And Topper is a family-owned and operated company for three generations. They're an authorized watch dealer for premium Swiss and Japanese watches from Omega, Grand Seiko, Moser, Longines, and more. You're getting the real thing from the right folks. Topper sells the watch you can afford now and the watch you'll buy in the future. It's all through Topper. If you're looking at something else, Topper also specializes in pre-owned watches, and they carry a deep selection of references from Rolex, Tudor, Breitling, and many, many more. That selection changes every week. And if you're subscribed to Topper's email newsletter, you get access to four secret editions to their pre-owned drop every Friday morning giving you the first right of refusal on the hottest offerings of the season. Visit Topper Jewelers to shop, subscribe, and join Topper's very own watch fam. That's Topper Jewelers, T-O-P-P-E-R, jewelers.com. Um, well, it's, it's funny because, I mean, I think something that, the thing I love the most about Sonic Editions and and what like your your business has done is it, it, it's made art affordable and i my one of the biggest like just heartbreaking uh things that i never realized until i you know got older i remember when i was younger and i was in school our art teacher would love to take us to the art museum right and you know she was kind of like an indiana jones thing in that like she really detested like private collections um she really wanted art to be as accessible as it could be and also people to have the ability to 
you know, if you, if you did love some art and you wanted to, to show it off that like you did have that ability, it wasn't just for the wealthiest of the wealthy ever. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I, I never really understood it, but as I got older and I started to want to get into art myself, um, I just realized that I was like, man, even as someone who is making, you know, a, a decent, you know, middle-class sort of salary, like it was basically impossible to get, you know, I, I mean, it, you couldn't get any form of art. So I, I would, I would buy, there's literally on, on the corner of my wall, which you, you can't see, I would buy, I'd go to art galleries, buy the program and cut out the yeah. program and the program because I love the artist. I cared about the artist, but there was, there was the barrier of entry was just so astronomically high yeah. that I could never, ever participate. Well, th- this really was the kind of, you know, the, the principle on which we founded it was, you know, genuinely would go, you know, I'd go to phot- photography exhibitions and, you know, the difference between photography and, and kind of you know, painting is, you know, the beauty of photography is it is, you know, you can replicate it, you know, for no money. You know, it's not like I have to get the painter to paint another one. You know, the, the exactly. beauty of yeah, it is, yeah. you know, if you've got the negative and you can, you know, you can produce it, you know, as many times as you want without any decrease in quality, you know, et cetera, et cetera. No. So we'd, I, I'd go to exhibitions and, you know, I'd buy the brochure and look around at the prices and, you know, as I say, buy the book, you know, that, that's a very slow way to uh, decorate your house. Um, True. So yeah, no, I was, I was, you know, the whole thing was I was convinced there were people like me, um, you know, who loved, you know, when we started just in music, um, because you know, I, I, it was something I knew. I felt that I knew there was, you know, an audience for, um, but who couldn't, you know, who wanted to go beyond the kind of student dorm room with a an old crinkled poster, you know, pinned to the wall, but couldn't afford the three thousand dollar print from you know an established gallery um that, that was some, yeah. somewhere in the middle and the other thing was that framing was a racket because you know whenever i used to take stuff to my framer before i had a tame framer you know it was always think of a number and it was just like oh god oh, i'll get one of them framed then you know and so i wanted to you know be able to sell it ready to hang on the wall framed nicely framed not kind of cheap cardboard frame but you know um so that was you know, the germ of the idea, um, and then the first you know, the first people we signed up were obviously Getty to get their archive, um, which I was you know luckily I knew somebody there. Um, um, once we got that, that kind of got us started, and then it was kind of going out and trying to persuade photographers to do it, which was very difficult at first um, because they liked the old model where you know the prints are you know a thousand dollars or pounds and signed and we were just like there's a diffusion range if you like below that for people who don't have you know a thousand pounds um but still want a high quality you know photographic print you know they're, they're a kind of stage in their life they don't want a poster anymore um and they're not quite at the stage in their life where they're a collector where they get the the smaller run signed ones so uh, yeah i mean and the argument is those people are the people you need to talk to now or else they're going to buy something else. Yeah. Like I mean, so many people, especially I mean, direct to consumer brands and everything they they're trying to go after not the wealthiest people. They're trying to go after the people who they think will be wealthy eventually down the road so they can grow with that customer base and then continue to sell upwards. Well, to this them. is my pitch to the photographers and, you know, the, you know, the prints we sell are a gateway drug to the sign stuff, you know, and, you know, now I've worked, you know, what I want when I work with photographers, I want to go and buy a signed one off them, you know, you know, normally, hopefully at a discount because, you know, I'm selling so much of their stuff unsigned. Um, sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. Um, uh, but, you know, that that's the kind of natural progression. Now, that's not just because, you know, I'm a, you know, middle-aged man who collects everything, you know, I can't see and anything I like I want all of it I want all the colorways I want all yeah and it's the same with photography I want that one and 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 can I have the signed ones and can I have you know the bigger ones and all of that so it, it does work that way you know 
only using myself as an example anyway. Sure. Well, it's so my old roommate, um, this is 2006. Um, and he used to be really into like British street art. And uh, for a while, there was Banksy, right? I mean, Banksy, everyone knows like who they are, who he is, all that other crap. But like, not no one really knew much about him. And I think he had a thing, I think it was called Pictures on Walls. And it was basically, you could buy Banksy prints, you could buy Invader prints, you could buy like tons of other like street artists. And they created this sort of marketplace where it was really cheap and accessible. So um, I think he had bought you know, one of the sort of, I love New York and it was the rat like with a heart around yeah. things. And I think it was, I think he said it was like 200 pounds. And, um, you know, this was, and I, and in my mind, I was like, well, that's so dumb. Like, why would you ever do that? Like, what, like it's like street art. It's, it's stencil art anyway. It doesn't really, you know, it, and what's interesting is over time, like he was like, no, he's like, I, you know, this stuff, you know, and for him, and I'll just be very clear. It was never about an investment yeah. opportunity. I think so many people there that in the back of their mind, especially with watches, they're like, well, what's the investment opportunity? He loved the work. He wanted the work. He loved it so much. He wanted it in his home um, or his, you know, crummy apartment that he shared with his, you know, crappy friend, Jeremy. And um, he would get all these things. And over time, you know, next thing you know, I mean, these, these pieces of art were just worth yeah. tons of, I mean, I think the one Banksy thing he has is like worth like $60,000 now. I mean, it was, you know, it, it, it's so old. And what's interesting is he had convinced me to also like, um, I, I'd gotten really into Morrison hotel yeah. gallery stuff. And I worked at, uh, when I was in New York, I worked at Apple just for a tiny bit. And I was doing this like creative thing. It was like this new job where you taught people how to, you know, how to use iMovie or whatever dumb thing. And a lot of times they would do these big stories at, in the theater. So they would, they'd bring a photographer in that we did in partnership with, with Morrison hotel gallery. And the guy that we had brought in was a guy named Joel Brodsky. Mm -hmm. I had no idea who he was. And they assigned me to help him make his keynote, which he basically showed pictures that he took and like what was famous about him. And this guy was kind of just like curmudgeon, kind of this, you know, goofy dude, really difficult to, to deal with. And, and we had all of these interactions and I was like, man, this guy just sucked. Like, you know, I don't care what, what pictures he took. He's just so rude to me. And, you know, I, being the good God fearing <laughs> preacher boy, I am I'm trying to be nice to him. And I started to see all of his work and he was super famous for taking the Jim Morrison yeah. you know, doors, arms image. And he was like, Hey, as a thank you, you know, you were so nice to me, pick any picture you want and I'll give it to you and I'll sign it. And at the time, uh, I was really into Howlin' Wolf. I mean, I still am. And he gave me this signed print of Howlin' Wolf that is like probably the most valuable thing I have now. And it, 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 that to me, like made me go down this crazier rabbit hole of trying to find like Claxton McQueen photos and all of these sort of things. And it's funny, like I had been buying Sonic Editions without even really knowing you or any of this stuff for, for ages. Oh, it was just like all these things led me to you because I, I shared the same sort of obsessive. I got to have yeah. it all, you know, i wanted this cool gallery of imagery. And I mean, it was just, it was wild. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because I mean, as we speak, I'm in, uh, as part of lockdown, um, we're kind of halfway between houses. Um, so, um, I'm, I live in London, but uh, over the summer we bought a large semi-furnished house, um, well, semi-furnished now down in Somerset. So because obviously, nice. you know, three months living with no garden and two small boys um, in the centre of London kind of made us all re both reevaluate what we really want from life. And you know, one of those things is a garden yeah. um, and <laughs> a lot more space. Um, and then, yeah, yeah. I, I love London. I've lived in London for twenty four years. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm at a stage in my life where, especially if you cut off all the things that are great about it for you know, six months, you know, I kind of want to, I want something else. You know, I still want to be there. And in the past when I've looked to leave, it's always got to be daily commutable back in. Whereas suddenly, um, yeah, my wife has not 
you know, been into our office since March. Um, my, you know, our office is in Marylebone in central London, but, you know, my team, I haven't seen them for months. Um, so suddenly we don't all need to be in there five days a week. So anyway, cut a long story short, we bought this house um, in a part of the world I've never been to before. We both, we drove down on the Friday, saw three houses like this one, drove back, made an offer in the car on the way back, bought it. Um, we realized after that neither of us had ever set foot in the county before, but, you know, it doesn't matter. Anyway, it gave me a huge blank because obviously my house in London, which is quite small, there is, you know, my wife had given me a no more dead rock stars um, yeah, ultimatum. <laughs> we we don't have any room for any more pictures of dead rock stars in the house. Um, where whereas now I've got a whole new house to decorate, um, and the outhouse that I'm sat in now, which I've just kind of put something on the wall. So yeah, yeah, it, it's great. It kind of you know it, for the collector in me, it's like right, I can do it all again. All the stuff I wanted off my site, which I've had no room or um, to, to put anywhere, I can do, I can finally put on the wall. Plus, for the past you know, few years, I've been buying prints off photographers that I had no space for. So they were all in tubes at home. Yeah. And finally, mm. it's like, right, we can go, we can go mad. Um, so after offering, you know, checking with my wife that there was some you know, more female-led stuff to go on the wall along with, you know, the Michael Jordan print that I'd had to buy off Walter Yost because we worked with Walter. And then I watched that documentary earlier in the year. It's like, I've got to get one of his signed print. You know, I must get this while I know him. Uh, so all this stuff has been sitting in tubes for ages, kind of gathering dust. It's finally kind of framed and on the wall. So, uh, yeah, it's nice to kind of have that, uh, that space to kind of just go mad again and just buy all the, you know, get all the stuff that you've been meaning to for ages. Yeah. What other things do you collect? Because you mentioned you said you collect. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, I can't help but collect things. So, you know, as a teenager, I collected Zippo lighters when I smoked. Um, my sunglass collection is kind of, you know, so ridiculous that uh, I even had Ray-Ban stands as a kind of uh, uh, watch on eBay so that I had something because I kept filling old shop display Ray-Ban stands with sunglasses. So there's hundreds of pairs of sunglasses. You know, I, anything, you know, I, I can't have whiskey or collect if I can't drink it quick enough. You know, anything, you know, I'm trying to slow down on that because on all these things because it's ridiculous because you just end up buying things, you know, colorways that you don't ever want to wear, but you want to have it for the, that kind of completion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, that's why I don't really buy sneakers anymore. At one point I used to have tons and tons of Jordans and Nikes and all these things. And, you know, when we were living in Brooklyn and just this tiny place, my wife was like, like, what are you, what are you doing with this? She's like, you don't even wear these. She's like, this is yeah. real. And I was like, well, that's the point. And she's like, either give them away or sell them today. I remember coming home and seeing all bed with just like a mound of stuff on it. What is this? And she's like, that exactly. She's like, this is your clothes. These are your things. She's like, get rid of them. <laughs> but art, she's never made me get rid of. Yeah. Yeah. As long as, yeah, as long as there's some buy-in, as long as it's not another picture of Keith Richards, um, you know, I'm okay. Yeah. Um, she doesn't know that there's another one at the framers at the moment, but that, <laughs> it's a, it's a classic, you know. <laughs> of, of all the stuff that you have, what are, what is the art that you care about the most? Ooh, that a that's a difficult question because you know I never want to kind of nail my colors to my the mast and you know say which is my favorite photographer um, because your house is on fire. You, you can only grab two things off the wall, three things off the wall. Um, I love the the Walter Yost shot of Michael Jordan, um, not just because it's Michael Jordan and, and, and just because it's a great shot because. The story behind it was, you know, so much fun. Um, I went up to Walter's house in Montauk with Dan Rookwood from Mr. Porter. Oh, yeah. Um, and Dan had kind of put the two of us in contact, which was fantastic. So Mr. Porter kind of did a shoot with Walter, with Bjorn, Walter's son, shooting it. And we're at this unbelievable kind of place at the top of Montauk. You know, his next-door neighbor was Peter Beard, um, 
you know, there's these ridiculous, beautiful houses that you know he bought in the early 70s for nothing and are now worth you know, $100 million. Um, and he took us down into his, you know, he was really generous with his time. We went down to his den for kind of two days and went through all his archive and he told us the stories of, you know, these shoots. And, you know, I'm not a big basketball fan because, A, I'm British. Um, and I, I went to university for a year at the University of Illinois. Um, and it was the year that um, Jordan came back for the, his first full year and it was Rodman, Pippin. So we found out that if you went to the United Center and waited 20 minutes into the game, they released the empty seats. So the touts were selling them for hundreds of dollars outside, and then you'd wait. 20 minutes into the game, you'd get the seats for face value. And now, you couldn't sit together, but you'd, you could go. So we used to go all the time. Oh, my God. So watching that documentary this year and kind of, you know, after hearing all the stories from Walter about what he was like, you know, and Walter had stories about Muhammad Ali and whatever, but he also had this fantastic collection over the years He'd swapped prints with all his favorite photographers. So he had this den. The other side of his den was this incredible photography collection you know, that I've never seen, all kind of dedicated to my friend Walter from Annie Leibovitz. Or, you know, cut a long story short, I have to take that one because, you know, because of that story and, you know, that kind of trip. Plus, that was the first thing we did with Mr. Porter with Sonic Editions, where, you know, it was the kind of the whole soup to nuts. They, you know, the collection went with them. They had the, you know, the story that dressed Walter. We shot it all. Um, and it was, you know, the first time I'd been to Montauk as well. So that was a good, you know, I have to take that one out. All right. Um, Two more. That's a great story though, by the way, not discounting that. Well, the next time I went to New York with my wife, I kind of, I had to go, I had to try, rented a car, drove up to Montauk and just went, you got to see this place. So we turned up at Walter's house <laughs> and it's just like, hey, lovely to see you again. I brought the wife to show her. Can you show the pictures in the den? <laughs> so, uh, um, which he did. He was very generous, again, with his time. and his, uh, for, uh, Wow. And he had, he also, you know, the picture I always loved that, that he had down there was that famous one of Ali um, standing above um, his, that was taken um, uh, from the, the rafters um, of the opponent, I'm trying to remember which fight it was now, um, flat out on the canvas um, and Ali kind of above him. So, yeah, so Walter had that picture, but he hung it in a diamond form. In a di- so Ali was at the top and it was, it's a square shot and it's the neon lifer shot of Sonny Liston flat on the canvas. Ali kind of stood above him. Um, and I remember just going, yeah. Neil said, you know, he always liked it hung that way. And years later in an exhibition, I heard this guy kind of go, oh, I think that's, uh, I think that's something like this. And it's just like, yeah. The photographer prefers it hung, you know, in a diamond formation rather than square. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember saying, joking with Walter that I was going to steal one of his prints and he genuinely thought I was. But because <laughs> he'd got the Springsteen by Danny Clinch, he'd got Annie Leibovitz's the Blues Brothers with their faces painted. Yeah, it, it's just an incredible. He loved Harry Benson's Beatles shots of them kind of having a yeah. pillow fight. Yeah, he's just got it all down there. Yeah, it was fantastic. So, what I've got to think of one other picture, haven't I? Um, um, I suppose it has to be. I was lucky enough. To, wow, it's either Terry O'Neill or Kevin Cummings. It has to be Kevin Cummings. It has to be Kevin Cummings' shot of Tony Wilson and Sean Ryder. Um, outside uh, the old Factory Records headquarters in Manchester promoting the Manchester EP because, and yeah, Kevin's taken some of the most famous kind of British rock photographs of all time. You know, he's got the Joy Division on the bridge of Stone Roses in paint. Um, He's taken more famous pictures than that one of, you know, Sean Ryder of the Happy Mondays. But that one kind of, I went to university in Manchester and I went to university in Manchester because of the music and because of factory records and Tony Wilson. So it has to be that one. It's worth a fraction of the others, but it's, yeah, it's the one that kind of um, led me to kind of where I ended up. The the last thing I'll, th- thanks for sharing that. That's pretty awesome. The, the last thing I I'll say about all this stuff that I think 
that what why I'm grateful for like sonic emissions and the things that you know you've kind of helped create is I feel like the quality of a photo has just been so you know undervalued recently just because everything is at mass. Yeah. Like when I think about Instagram, right? And when I even think about just like my my phone itself, like I can take photos forever all day and I'm never going to run out of space and the photo is going to be decent, but because of that, because of the there is no rarity to it. It's I don't feel like I treasure it as much as I should. And when I look back at photos, you know, I, unfortunately I recently lost my grandma from COVID and she was 95 and we found, um, you know, she was pretty private. And so we, uh, had found some photo albums that she had and we sat and we were looking through these old photo albums. And I mean, and geez, you know, living the life she did at 95 and being American Indian and growing up on reservations and all the sorts of things, there was just so many things I had no idea. And I feel like, you know, if it was just some Google photos album on a nightstand, it just wouldn't mean anything the way it was when you saw the physical images, how she had laid them out in this sort of notebook. Like I got so emotional looking at it and I, you know, I feel like people don't really take photos as, as uh, maybe, maybe it's, they're taken more for granted now just because they're easy to get. And it's, but there's still beauty in like the stuff that you're saying, because to me, all those things that you said, they were all personal to you because they represent the culture of mankind. Yeah. And, you know, as you say, we, we take so many photos now. I mean, if you look at you know, my iPhoto, you know, 2020 alone, you know, there's more than, you know, my, my parents probably took of me growing up for their, you know, my entire childhood. Um, and at some, you know, we all kind of think, well, at some point I'm going to sit down and edit these and just do, you know, and we never do because there's too many. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's so nice. You know, the, the thing about, I love about this more than anything else is to go and talk to the photographers and go through their archives and find the stuff and hear the stories. And, you know, you don't get that. Yeah. In the same way now, you know, a lot of the photographers, yeah, I think rock and roll and that kind of mu- the music era will look back on that period of 1960, whatever, to yeah, probably 2010. That will be like the jazz age or something. Yeah, it will be, yeah, it's got a beginning and an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the photographers that I'm lucky enough to work with, you know, they were the people who had access to that, you know, that era and access to these people that, you know, some of them were massively famous in their own lifetimes. Some of them you know, now massively more famous than they were when they were alive or when the, the band was kind of, you know, uh, in its pomp. But, uh, but it's great talking to them, the people who were kind of in the room with it, you know, who knew them, you know, you know that, that's as close as I'm going to get to, you know, these things, which, you know, in, in the case of music is, um, yeah, that was my first love of, out of all this. Yeah, and to, com- to be able to combine music and photography and make a living out of it, I suppose, you know, um, I should be grateful, especially uh, um, when otherwise I could be on a 36-person marketing call um, on mute reading the paper. Which, I'll be honest, would, is probably happening to millions of people right now whom, you know, God bless them, they, they all have jobs and that's great. But at, when you feel... You know, it's funny, like in, on like the, the, in Buemo, we have like this Slack group and it's a, basically some of the most like hard listeners and they're all kind of in there chatting. And, and I feel like, especially today, we were all kind of lamenting and complaining about just like how crappy yeah. life feels like. Yeah. We're in full lockdown again here. So we've got, we're homeschooling, um, and both working from home. And as I said, we weren't supposed to be moving down here just yet. <laughs> this was a bit of a surprise because we came down for Christmas and then they locked down. So, and they closed the school. So we just thought, well, we might as well stay down here where we've got, um, uh, yeah, more space and what have you. So they're supposed to be in school in London until Easter when we actually make the full jump. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, so we're down here kind of busking it. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, I hope things get better there soon. I mean, better for everyone, but geez. Yeah. It's the same, you know, it, 
I can't believe that nearly a year on, because yeah, this time last year I was going to project in New York, which is uh, you know how this whole thing kind of came about. Um, you know, I did six transatlantics before the end of February. Um, you know, when it all kind of locked, you know, locked down. Yeah. And I remember, you know, it was kind of creeping up as we, you know, as I was doing all these trips to the point that, because the last one was Las Vegas, where I went to, again, project. I was there with Chris Black. Yeah. And my concern was, well, what if it locks down while I'm here? Yeah. What if I catch it when I'm here and I just have to spend the rest of the year in Las Vegas? Um, you know, kind of. <laughs> Could be worse. I, guess. Oh, I don't know. It was my. It was my first, I, you know, having lived in the States and being, you know, traveled extensively. It was my first trip to Vegas and uh, I'm glad I've seen it. But, uh, oh yeah, Vegas is, is amazing for about a day. And then you realize that you're basically, you, you've been indoors the whole time because yeah. you're in a desert. It's, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I've done it. Don't need to do, tick, tick the box on that one. Don't want, don't need to do that one again. Yeah. <laughs> After all those trips early last year, obviously I haven't been to the States since I got back from Vegas in February. Um, and it's now, yeah, after, yeah, for a while it's fun, you know, not being on a plane all the time. Um, and now it's getting like, okay, I need to, you know, going back to the original thing about the economy, you, I need to see people again. You know, it's, you know, it, you can run on goodwill and fumes for so long, but eventually you need to kind of go and invest in people again and go and see them and catch up with them and, you know, tell them you're still, doing it and, you know, oh, yeah. get, get those chance meetings along the way and those chance coffees. Cause you know, from, from the very start, you know, our, our U S U S operation, you know, was just down to me getting on, a, you know, getting on a plane. You know, when we started, we were just bootstrapping it. There was no money. You know, I got an air miles flight to LA and then, you know, back from New York with a kind of, um, cheap day flight in between and just went around and, you know, hammered every contact I could to try, you know, try and get us going over there. Um, with Cause we started in the UK, the enemy were our first kind of big partnership. We wanted, you know, having read the enemy growing up, we wanted to get them on board, get their photographers on board and get them to kind of be our partner um, to kind of promote it. So that had worked really well. So I was like, right, the next, you know, the next obvious move is let's go and try and do the same thing with Rolling Stone. So came to New York, hammered, you know, I haven't used LinkedIn, you know, for 10 years, but at the time just went around everybody I knew, anyone who knew anyone at Rolling Stone to get an in, you know, get in the door, which I eventually did. And they loved the idea so much. They went and did it with a much better finance competitor. Um, but by complete chance, the other person I kind of met up with on that trip was um, uh, Sean Sullivan, who ran The Impossible Cool, which I loved. And he and I hit it off, and we worked together for a few years, and that's how I kind of got, you know, initial. Um, initially, we worked with Michael Williams, and then um, Mike, Michael um, fired me, um, and uh, we worked with Chris Black, which uh, um, and I love Michael. You know, with, with, we're fine, but I think at the time it was one of those lessons of if somebody's doing you a favor, don't ring him five times a week. <laughs> I think, you know, you, you ain't paying the bills. You're just a favor to Sean. You know, leave me alone. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's a, a, an important lesson when you're starting a business of like, don't rinse your, you know, don't rinse your contacts. Um, yeah. No, I, I know that feeling and I've, I've had that a bit and I've, myself had to try to learn how to create boundaries from all my buddies who get, you know, sort of great ideas or, or people, you know, want to kind of keep pinging you. It's like, how, how do you set your own personal boundaries? But like, that, wow, that's, that's crazy. I didn't know. Cause all the Sonic edition stuff I ever bought, I bought in person at like events. We've done pop-ups in New York, um, in the past with Mr. Porter. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, and obviously, you know, one of our early partnerships was with Guilt, which I think everybody, you know, everybody has, you know, worked for Guilt at some point. Um, oh, right. The great kind of alma mater for every blogger, um, you know, you know uh, everybody in the kind of menswear space did some time at Guilt Man. I mean, 
jumping back, I mean, if you started in 2009, you started in probably, you know, probably the worst time in, in history, maybe other than now to start a, a business and a brand. Yeah. And you've grown and, you know, you're still doing it and it's, you know, it's 2021 now and look at you. I mean, it's still, you're still chugging along. Yeah, no, it's, uh, um, we were supposed to be doing all our, we did our 10th birthday in London in 2019 and we were going to do a, a, a US one because we started in the US in 2010. Mm. Um, we we're going to do it last year, but obviously, you know, that, that got put back. But, <laughs> but yeah, you know, when I'm not kind of moaning about, you know, managing people or, you know, uh, customers wanting to return something they bought four months ago or DHL smashing, you know, another print or whatever it is, you do have to kind of stop and just go, you know, this is as good as it's going to get. You know, this is, it's fun. You know, it can be fun. Um, it's a living. Um, and, you know, it's still something that I'm interested in. So, uh, yeah, you do have to be thankful. It's not something I'm very good at. I'm a kind of, yeah. Well, I mean, the, to me, I never realized I would feel this, but the best feeling in the world has been when I've been able to make some form of living doing what I love. And it's like, whoa, the, you know, the money that's like putting food on the table and that's feeding my, you know, my toddler is money that I earned doing something I love, yeah. you know, and comparing that to where I've been in other places in my life it's heaven, you know, and I, and I try to kind of remind myself of that. So I don't take it for granted. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, yeah, and critically, I don't have to answer to anyone, which I was never very good at doing. Yeah. See what a flex, right? There. So, well, cool. Well, this, this was really good chatting. Um, I, I really, really thank you for your candor and openness about this. It's been great. No, absolutely. Um, no, it was, uh, it was really fun. Anyway, Russell, it was great talking to you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeremy. Take care. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Brendan Finn and produced by Blamo Media. You can follow along with us on Instagram or leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. Look, I don't get reviews either, but go on, give us them five stars and do it for the B. If you want even more Blamo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam. You'll get access to additional interviews, our community Slack, special events, and more. Best of all, you're supporting the show. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.